1: Do you want to know what you should do next? How about this? Instead of trying to dish the dirt on one poor misguided, misinformed lump to you, write a big article, something you can sell to one of the nationals about why so much of it goes on around here. So much. Ducks. Wasted lives. This valley's a washed with every kind of crap you can get your hands on. There's your story. Do you want to know where they took him? They probably took him to the psychiatric unit when in fact all he needed was a brief controlled demonstration of our petrol beers when you put it anywhere near a naked flame because he had no idea how bad it'd be. Where's Tommy Lee Royce living?
0: No idea.
2: How you doing guys? It's Ben Bailey-Smith.
3: And Sasha Bates.
2: And if you don't know by now, this is the podcast where we put our favourite fictional TV characters into therapy to find out what the heck is going on and what we can learn from it. Um, Sash, could you do the honours and tell us a little bit about the first clip we just heard?
3: That was Catherine Kaywood, who is a police officer in the aptly named Happy Valley. I think it's really interesting that it's called Happy Valley because it so isn't. And she is fighting the drugs and hopelessness and helplessness of all the people that live there. And in a way, it's a bit of a mirror of her life because she's suffering a lot of grief and loss herself but doing it as we heard there with a lot of forthrightness and honesty and humor and just wanting people to get on with it wanting to make change what
2: an unforgettable show unforgettable performance Mm. from sarah lancashire what really blows me away about the show from a writing perspective and we always celebrate the writers on this show is when you think about this first season that we're looking at today that 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 came out in 2014 Mm. What I respect about this show is the way Sally Wainwright just waited until she was ready.
3: It does feel so real and you do feel, because of that passing of time, which is so visibly demonstrated by Ryan moving from being an eight-year-old to a 17, 18-year-old, you kind of really feel like you're getting to know them and you're living their lives and they are lives of quite a lot of bleakness and confusion and difficulty and, and sadness, but also it really celebrates the kind of those little moments of connection and the mundanity and getting so, by. and
2: so packed with humanity.
3: It really really is. Yeah. And there is, I mean, there is a really interesting plot line as well. It, th- but that sort of takes a backseat to the family drama, really.
2: There's so many exciting, thrilling, scary moments in this, in terms of the, you know, the overarching plot. Mm. But there'll be moments of just confrontation between, say, the two sisters, mm. the amazing Siobhan Finneran. It's more explosive, then the biggest explosion you mm. could,
3: <laughs> so true.
2: you know, physically put on screen. And that is how it feels, right, yeah. in real life. You know when you, you have a thing with someone really close a sibling or some, something like that, where there's an unsaid truth, like mm. it's a thing that's painful that no one's talked about for years and then someone just goes for it. Mm. Those moments on Happy Valley are captured like, how, mm. did, they, how did they find that honesty?
3: And that's what's, you know, really gripping, I think. Can they blow up and then get back from it? Can mm. they recover?
2: All right, coming up, guys, we are going to learn how anger could be a force for good. And we're going to ask if we're misusing the word trigger, right? And also we're going to ask what happens when birthday parties turn from domestic bliss into full-on domestic. And of course, you know, as always, a warning. I mean, content is often adult on this show, but Happy Valley has got some pretty disturbing elements to it and we're not going to shy away from talking about that so you know yeah just be cautious when you're listening or if you know if there's young people around and whatnot Um, and as ever there's going to be spoilers for season one only so guys kick back relax and welcome to shrink the box so as i mentioned before happy valley season one aired for the first time in 2014 nearly 10 years ago it's insane so, for those who might need a little reminder, here's a, a, as brief a recap as I can uh, muster. We got Catherine Kaywood, played by Sarah Lancashire, who lives with her sister Claire, Siobhan Finneran, and her grandson Ryan, who she's bringing up. That's as Catherine's grandson. And Catherine hears that this guy Tommy Lee Royce, who's played by James Norton, has been released from prison. We see the reaction. She becomes obsessed with finding Tommy. She's unaware that he's involved in this kidnapping of Anne Gallagher, who's the daughter of a, a local wealthy businessman that she knows called Neverson Gallagher. One big plot point from season one that's important is that Tommy runs over and kills this young female police officer called Kirsten. And, and that hits Catherine real hard as well on top of everything else because she just told Kirsten to toughen up the night before, you know, pull your socks up kind of thing. And another important point is that despite Catherine's best efforts, Tommy finds out that Ryan is his son. Just huge. So with all that in mind, how much she's got going on, Sash, can you tell us a bit about your client,
3: she is a police sergeant, but she did take a step down in order to bring up her grandson Ryan, who is eight in in this series, and she's bringing him up because her daughter Becky, uh, Ryan's mum, took her own life as a result. We think of being a drug addict, having been raped by Tommy Lee Royce. She's also got an adult son called Daniel who doesn't speak to her or um, reluctantly speaks to her when he has to. And she's divorced because her husband, Richard, didn't want to bring up Ryan. He couldn't get beyond the thought that it was Ryan's birth that caused the death of Becky. So she lives with Ryan and her sister, Claire, who, to add to the, the whole family saga, is a recovering heroin addict.
2: It's, it's unreal, isn't it? Mm. You know, what she's got going on. You, you sort of get the vibe from her. It's like, no one else can do it, so I'll, I'll do it.
3: I think she's carrying a lot of guilt for not being able to save Becky. And I think anybody who loses somebody has carries some guilt that they weren't able to sort of keep them alive. That guilt is partly what spurs her on to try and save other people, to save Ryan, to save the people in the community, all these other drug addicts that she's trying to to not see go down the same path. But the other reason why I think she takes on so much responsibility is because it helps her to distract from that grief. If she keeps going, if she keeps sort of like having a purpose and being active she doesn't have to think about the pain of losing becky
2: why is it that why is it that i I'll often laugh when i'm watching her just dress someone down <laughs> you know and i just like she is the fucking don i warmed her massively she's like an emotional island <laughs> you know she bats you away when you're trying to get close and stuff like that. so why do, why do i love her so much
3: yeah, I mean, well, she just she takes no shit. She just says it like it is. And she does it with humour as well. And there is kindness behind the aggression. I mean, even you mentioned Kirsten and had the night before Kirsten dies, she said, you've got to toughen up. And she did it out of sort of love in a way because she doesn't want Kirsten to, to be pushed around like she had been with the, the previous arrest she'd made. So she's like, no, don't let them treat you like this. So she's trying to help and she is wanting to bring the best out of people but she does it it's very tough love
2: she's what they call in the way a good police because she she's she's she still sort of you sense under everything she knows what the right thing to do this is the right thing to do yeah right now yeah. so she's got all these these things going on professionally personally what's the first thing you think you'd address with with Catherine?
3: We really need to look at all this grief that she's suppressing and all the associated feelings, because I think there is guilt there, which she doesn't want to look at. I think there's a lot of anger. But I think the thing with grief as well, that in the early months and even like the first year or two, people are very conscious of your grief and and they're very kind of considerate towards you. But after a few years go by, everybody, including yourself, sort of expects you to to be over it. And of course, the truth is, you never are over it. You get better at managing it. And all her efforts to keep busy, to do the right thing by Ryan, it takes energy to suppress all those feelings that are there. And I think that's partly why she seems so tired all the time. And the other thing I think with grief is that it's not just the person that you've lost. There's a whole load of subsidiary losses that come in the wake of it. I mean, as a result of her grief, I mean, yes she lost her husband and she lost her son because he stopped talking to her but she also lost a part of herself she says this very explicitly much later in the series when Becky died I lost a part of me and you do when you lose someone important you can lose enthusiasm she also lost her detective job she lost her freedom I mean she just got rid of her kids in the sense that they were old enough mm. for her to think oh I get my life back a bit but no she's back to looking after a young child again she should
2: be winding down to she retire should, yeah
3: and he's a difficult child at that and i think that's another thing she's suppressing all those contradictory feelings how she feels about ryan
2: oh man i was just it's so mad as you were talking i was thinking this is what i want to ask you next because it's so dark but to raise this kid with the natural maternal instinct that she's got the kindness the desire for justice and to do what's right how do you deal with those almost animalistic instinctive moments where this boy that you're raising kind of as your son does something that all kids do you know something selfish or whatever and just in a flash you see the abuser in his face the genetics the father this this murderous rapist how the holy fuck do you not snap or like freak out or you know run a mile
3: She is battling to not do that, but it does raise its head occasionally. And as the series goes on, that becomes more and more prominent and more and more overt. But I think in the early episodes, it's very covert and she's really trying not to let that come into consciousness. One of the reasons why Ryan does act out so much, why she's endlessly being called into school to talk to his teachers because of his bad behaviour is I think he is picking up on that unconsciously. And children do. I I mean, unfortunately... or or fortune. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say unfortunately or fortunately they don't just listen to what adults say they listen to what they're not saying and i think he can really tap into the fact that she has complex feelings towards him and he's acting out her disowned anger and concern about are you becky's son or are you tommy lee royce's son
2: it it makes you angry at her but then you also think well i i couldn't I don't know how I would react.
3: Mm. And Richard I, couldn't. Richard left. He, he
2: sort of foresaw it, right? Mm. Richard sort of was like, think about it. Like, what are you going to do when he's hits 18 and he looks exactly like mm. the young Tommy Lee Royce? Do you know what I mean? The, to leave Catherine with that burden is is just... It's brutal.
3: In a way, one of the first times when she has to go and see the teacher and the teacher's talking about Ryan's problems and she says, oh, he needs to learn coping strategies. And I think, you know, she could almost be talking to Catherine as well. She needs coping Mm. strategies for her anger. And Tommy Lee Royce, actually, he's the cause of the problems, but he's also the answer to the problems because when he comes out of prison, he becomes her coping strategy because suddenly she's got an external focus. She can stop worrying about the internal battle about how much of this was my fault, how much is he and Ryan. It's like, oh, now I've got an external object. I can project all of that anger, all of that powerlessness, I can turn into an empowerment If I'm going to get him, I'm going to chase him. And she won't broach any other reading of the subject. It's no, no, he raped her. It wasn't a relationship. He supplied her with the drugs. He was the cause of her death. In a way, Tommy's the answer to some of her tiredness and her suppression.
2: Okay, so we've, we've, we've talked about the different layers underneath this, this umbrella of grief and obviously one of the things is rage, which, you know, it, it spills out of her in, in, in different ways. Sometimes it's with really funny put downs in a way, but um, she never backs down, essentially. Let's, let's, let's hear her in action. Uh,
0: uh, uh. And another one bites.
1: Get out your vehicle. Why? Get out of your vehicle. What'd you say? Nothing. No, I heard you You said something. I'd like to repeat it.
0: It's, I didn't mean anything. About. I was just singing.
1: What were you singing? Nothing. So you think it's funny? Because no. I got the distinct impression you thought it was funny. I don't know what you mean. So you think I'm stupid? No. Do I look stupid? No. Turn like around. Why? Turn around. haven't done anything. Yes, you ah. You've used abusive words and behaviour, like to cause harassment, alarm or distress, contrary to section five of the Public Order Act, which is why you're under arrest. I was just singing. You're would like to say anything, but it may no. harm your defence if you do not mention when questioned something you later rely on no. No, 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 Anything you do say. I'm going to be giving an evidence. Oh no, no you, you can't do that! No CCTV cameras in here. Sunbeam, it's just your word
0: against me. I'm her. sorry. I've said I'm sorry.
1: Ever, <laughs> ever um. make fun of someone's death? You ignorant, frantic, infinitesimal speck of I'm Sorry. Get out. Oh, what are you going to do now? I just arrested you. I'll make a note of the fact that you apologise profusely. In tears. Man, now you go.
2: She she knows what justice is, man. She knows. She knows. And that's from episode three from season one of Happy Valley, created and written by Sally Wainwright, starring Sarah Lancashire as Catherine Kaywood and Adam Legatis as Brett McKendrick. It's directed by Iros Lynn, and we'll give you the full credits, including the team of writers, for this and all the clips used at the end of this podcast.
3: As well as having Tommy back she's also got this awful situation where Kirsten that we've talked about gets killed by Tommy she doesn't I don't think originally she knows that it's by Tommy, but the reason why she gets so angry with that lad and does, you know, grab him by the balls and bring him to tears is because she's been quite triggered by Kirsten's death. It really reminds her of Becky's death. Even though she'd said to Kirsten, I'm not your mother, she actually was quite maternal towards Mm. her and she she was sort of treating her like a surrogate daughter. So it's like she's lost Kirsten in the present and that has re-triggered all those memories of losing Becky in the past.
2: We haven't really touched on Tommy in full yet, right? But we're going to do that.
1: Mm.
2: We're just going to take a quick break. And after that, we're going to hear whether psychopathic tendencies can be inherited. We're going to hear the truth about triggers. And the birthday party that felt more like a barroom brawl. So we'll see you after these messages. Unless, of course, you subscribe to The Take. In which case, we'll see you quicker than I can make a restorative brew. Let's take the kettle on, Sash. Hey, it's Ben here. Shrink the Box is sponsored by BetterHelp. And most of us are very busy. We find it hard to fit in extra, well, extra anything into our day. But what if you had another hour every day? Imagine that. I'd start by working through the massive list of TV shows you guys have got me watching for Shrink. Thing is, we'd all love more time. But actually, if something's really important to us, we prioritize it and make time. And therapy can help you identify what matters to you. And how you can do more of it. So, if you're thinking of starting, give BetterHelp a try. I know I use it; it's great. You get matched with a registered therapist. You can switch if it's not clicking for for no additional charge. It's all online, and that saves you those precious minutes, right? So, with over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com/slash shrink the box today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P dot slash shrink the box.
0: There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So
3: follow The 7 right now.
0: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. The anime awards this year were amazing. And I'm still not over all of the amazing live musical performances.
2: Honestly, same. The anime awards may be over, but our discussion is not. If, like us, you're still not over the anime award show and the results, join us on Crunchyroll Presents the Anime Effect.
0: Listening each week to our breakdown of everything that happened at the 2024 Anime Awards and hear news on the other anime and pop culture that you care about.
2: If you don't want to miss all the post-Anime Awards discussion, then tune in to Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. And watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or the Crunchyroll YouTube channel. Alright, yep, it's us again. Sash, we hear the phrase being triggered all the time. In fact, my teenagers use it in, like, a fun way. Like... Pretty much every day, you know. Like Gail's had the wrong milk, it triggered me, you know. <laughs> what does it really mean, in your opinion?
3: Yeah, I mean, it is one of those many words that gets kind of like conscripted into everyday parlance. But really, a trigger is when an old trauma is reactivated and you start to not be able to distinguish between past and present because when you're in a trauma response, that gets very confused. So we see very clearly when Kirsten is killed that Catherine starts to get flashbacks of Becky dead. Mm. And it's really distressing. I mean, as a viewer, it's distressing to see how these visualizations pop up in her mind. And in those moments, she can't tell what is now and what is... Then, So she has been triggered back into a trauma response. And what happens when you are in that response is not only can you not distinguish past and present, but you aren't able to respond from a thinking place. So you're responding from an emotional, what we call the limbic system is taking over your nervous system, is causing you just to react as though you're in survival, as though survival is at, at stake, rather than being able to rationally, calmly think, okay, this isn't how I need to deal with this, and that's a good, that's great in the short term, but not in the long term. She doesn't want to be acting as though she's still back in those early moments. It's a physiological response, and it's really hard to overcome. But what is great about Catherine is over the eight years of missing Becky, she's learnt quite a lot of coping strategies. Actually, one of which, and the most important actually, when you are um, having flashbacks, is to turn to your attachment figure. And we see it. She goes home to Claire. She cries. She says, "This was awful," and. Claire is able to soothe her. She also phones Richard. He's another secure attachment figure. So she turns to another person to help calm the upset. There's also more kind of physiologically calming things you can do, which is really important because like I said, it's a physiological response. So she does her deep breathing. She helps herself come into the present by looking around. You can see she looks back at the place where she's seen the visualization of of, of Becky, and she can you can kind of almost see her noting okay, no, it's a locker, and I there's a wall, and there's a window, and that's something you can do. You can actually start listing the things that you can see and hear in the present, so your brain starts to catch up. Okay, now this I'm in this moment in this room. I'm not back seeing my dead daughter. So another really good thing, and she, which is again she's been doing for the last eight years, is you you can mobilize you can take action so she's been going out to work and doing all the stuff that she needs to do so taking action and empowering yourself she lets herself feel the feelings you know she's quite good at crying she lets it out that way and she looks after others that's another way of kind of um coping when you are you are triggered so she's she's got all the techniques and she's sort of flinging everything in there but sometimes you're so triggered, the, the traumas are so huge that all the coping strategies in the world are going to run out eventually because it's the intersection of how many coping strategies mm. but also how many stressors and her stressors keep on yeah. coming. Ryan acts out more, he gets naughtier. Tommy Lee Royce's mum, first of all, says, oh, I think no, that's no, my course. grandson. Yeah. And then Tommy his, himself says, is that my son? She is getting it from, from all sides. Mm. Um, and the other thing that she's doing as well, of course, in in the that would come under the sort of the category of mobilisation and taking action is she just goes all out trying to catch Tommy Lee Royce and she's using that anger for really. Good purposes. She's f- using it to re-energize herself to go go and chase him. And anger can be really productive and really positive if you put it to good use. If you use it to go and campaign or to even that clip we heard at the beginning when she was telling Richard write an article about the drugs, do something, makes use your anger as an agent for change. Mm-hmm. But anger can also be really destructive, as we know, which is why most people are really frightened of anger because most people experience it as something uncontrollable and uh, dangerous. And and destructive.
2: So Tommy is such an extreme trigger that she doesn't use uh, the, all the normal coping strategies. Mm. It's like it's, it's too.
3: Yeah I, think, yeah, I think. Yeah, it seems it seems so that she gets sort of overwhelmed. She's always teetering on that edge. She's always sort of like battling. And I think actually we had a clip as well of her almost um, voicing that that battle between her heart and her her head between, oh, do I let my anger just take me into like vengeful destruction, or do I try and think, no, I'm a policewoman. I'm going to deal with this in a kind of calm, controlled way.
1: I'm just weighing up the pros and cons of. If- what well, it'd mean to take the law into your own hands?
0: Well, the downside, obviously, would be if you got caught.
1: Hmm. Possibly. I don't know what say the downside would be if you didn't feel much different, or better, after you'd done the thing. Which why would you? Didn't like it to bring her back, is it?
0: Don't let yourself get obsessed with it. He's low life. He's scum. He'll get what's coming to him one day.
1: The upside, on the other hand, would be the exquisite satisfaction you get from grinding his severed scrotum into the mud with the underside of your shitty shoe, and then burying his worthless carcass in a shallow grave up on the moors where it can rot, undisturbed and unloved, until the end of time—sure, that would make me feel better, just a bit.
2: <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, Tommy is still running riot. And there's a point where Catherine rescues Anne Gallagher, gets badly beaten up and hospitalised by Tommy, um, who escapes. And Catherine, um, understandably, is at is, is an incredibly low point. So all, where does she go from there?
3: She can no longer take action because she's done everything she can, and he's still got away. And she's now physically immobile because of her injuries, and so she is forced to stay still and and face the feelings. and And there's this really sad image of her one day sitting up on the moor in the rain, just sort of crying, and it it, it just sort of visually depicts how isolated and alone and vulnerable she is. I think, but she won't let anyone help. She's turning away from her attachment figures. She doesn't want them to help because it's almost like it's just too much because what if they go
2: dangerous mm. to push them aside there's a there's a scene right at the end of season two and this won't spoil anything for any, it's like a sort of vignette almost there's like a happy ending kind of thing they're walking through like a field and ryan's asking if he can get a dog and all the dogs he's listing of these fancy dogs uh could be described as dangerous dogs if raised a certain way i might add And you can see it prickling just the tiniest bit on Catherine, even though they're having a fun, jolly conversation. Then he runs off ahead. He's got a big stick in his hand and he just starts whacking the heads of flowers, that kind of thing. And we rest on Catherine. And she's just looking at this kid and the look in her eyes is saying he's got a weapon. He's he's breeding dangerous dogs. He could be the next killer mm. you know it's just it's all in her eyes it's hard to describe but it's like incredibly lovely and warm scene with this chilling element mm. and is that human nature to think this kid's parent was a psychopath therefore he's going to be a psychopath or is there something genetic going on that is unavoidable
3: i think that Catherine is constantly wondering will he turn out like his dad, which is basically a kind of very personalized version of the Mm nature-nurture debate. And I think at the beginning, she's really not allowing herself to go there. But then as her mental state deteriorates and as his behavior gets worse and worse, and as she's confronted more and more visibly with Tommy Lee Royce's violence that connection is coming stronger and stronger. And she can't stop herself thinking, he's his son, it's his genetic inheritance, he's going to turn out to be a little bastard, Mm -hmm. a violent little bastard. Um, And of course, that fuels her dislike of Ryan. And she gets more and more kind of vocal about her dislike of him. So Richard actually kind of has to bring her back to reality that no, it's not nature, it's nurture. So let's hear him explain it better than I could.
0: (laughs) I thought you said he was dyslexic. He's tough. Catherine, if he's dyslexic, he will get angry and frustrated. It doesn't mean he's. like his dad. Yeah, but like.
1: <laughs> what? But what? bound to be at some level. He's just bound to be into.
0: Tommy Leroyce. Right. I don't even think he's a psychopath. Not a real one. I think he is this little twisted thing who grew up unloved. More than love. Despised, probably. Treated like dirt on a daily basis in squalor and chaos. Ryan is loved. Cared for. He has not grown up in either squalor or chaos, thanks to you. There's a massive, massive difference. And yet, yeah, part of him will always inevitably be Tommy Lee, Bloody Royce, but part of him will always be Becky. And a bigger part of him will be you. And Claire, because you're the people who've had the most influence on him. And I understand it's tough from time to time, but kids are a nightmare. All kids, any kids, they all have their moments. You know this. Blimey, if Becky, she used to... Don't. The, fl-
2: the The conversations that we have every day as human beings somewhere down the line, whether it's at home or in the pub or wherever... Everybody has this thought and this conversation of of nature versus nurture at Mm. some point. Mm. And we all think about our parents and our grandparents and our kids and chains and patterns and all of these things. And I think we probably all have little prejudices as well. Like, oh, well, you know what his dad was like. You know, we probably have those unspoken biases too. Mm. But you can't ignore the facts that Richard is putting in front of her.
3: Yeah, and I mean, a genetic inheritance is only as strong as how it's kind of like nurtured. You can have seeds planted, but if you don't water them or tend to them, they're not going to grow. So everyone has the possibility to kind of grow into the the genes they've got. But also, if you're nurtured and tended in a different way, you're going to grow up in a completely different way. Tommy Lee Royce would never have become Tommy Lee Royce if his caregivers had given him some sort of sense of self-worth. Ryan, it's a completely different situation. He's grown up being loved and cared for. And so he's, why would he become violent? It's not something that you're necessarily going to become just because you're somebody else in your family had had that. The
2: fear is irrational, ultimately, is what you're saying. Yeah. Can one overcome profound trauma like that? And is it easier or harder if you're approaching 60 or in your 60s?
3: Well it's all to do with a combination of things. So it's about how many different things have happened, that accumulation right. of of experiences and how you are able to deal with them. Both how you were helped to deal with them then and how you're helped to deal with them now. And we can kind of see that Catherine does have all those techniques and she always knows that she's loved. There were times when the traumas overwhelm her, but because there is a love there and there is a, a kind of a resilience there, she is able to like claw her way back to it. Maybe not in the moment, but she has the, the memory and the knowledge and the resilience of, okay, I, I have got myself back from this in the past. And there are people here to help me to do that. I mean, even when she's like foul to Ryan and to Claire and kind of basically tells them both to leave the house. And Ryan is like, what's going on? And Claire says, we've got to be kind to Granny. She's not very well. And, you know, like she's kind to us. So Claire, even though Catherine's been a complete bitch and told her basically to leave the house and she's useless, um, Claire has got the the bigger picture. She can say, no, she's going through something and we're still going to be there for her. And Catherine, when she comes out of it. she can see, yeah, no, Claire was there and she was solid and she wasn't going to leave me just because I acted out, just as Catherine isn't going to leave Ryan just because he's acting out. And there's something actually in therapy that we call rupture and repair, which is I think I might have mentioned this before, where it's not the rupture in the relationship that's the problem, it's how you repair it. So if a right. client gets really angry with you, and you are able to hold that anger and not either retaliate or collapse in the face of it, then they know it's okay to get angry. Conflict doesn't have to destroy you. Yes, Conflict, I think
2: you did mention this. Yeah. before. It's, it's really interesting that concept of of like sort of being the the sponge and soaking it up. Mm. and showing the person that it's it's not necessarily the end of the world.
3: And I think that with all the, the blow-ups that, that are going on, all the sort of like little explosions that she's creating or have been created for her in all her relationships, the fact that they are allowed to sort of burn out and then that they can come back together and say, yeah, Let's be a family again. It's like she's brought back in all the bits of herself that she disowned—the angry bit, the guilty bit, the the sad bit. And she's like, okay, no, they're all part of me. I can admit to them now. So as she reintegrates those parts of herself, she can reintegrate her family members as well. So there's a, a coming back together of her internal self and the external relationships as well.
2: It's an incredibly hard and mature skill to develop to when or to to utilize when you're at the sharp end of a confrontation, Mm. your body sort of starts to betray you. Do you know what I mean? And then you don't say the right thing or you can't even speak or, you know, or you explode in a way that is, Mm. you know, quotes, unquotes, not you.
3: They can't stop it in the moment, but what they can do is stop and reflect afterwards and look back and they can say, okay, this is what was happening and this is why I needed to say it and this is why you needed to hear it. It's restorative, yeah.
2: Before restoration, <laughs> there clearly comes uh, provocation, confrontation. <laughs> and we, we see it all hang out in the uh, in the birthday party from hell. I mean...
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Kathy doesn't even want this birthday party. It's mm. Claire's very misguided attempt to rouse her from this sort of state of depression and despair that she's got herself into. But what happens is that Daniel, I think, gets particularly drunk and all his old grievances come out because we haven't spoken much about Daniel, but Mm, he...
2: He's a a great character.
3: He is. And he's been a bit marginalised in the show as he is sort of marginalised in the family. And as he expresses in his sort of drunken fury, all the attention was on Becky. And he felt that he was the good boy. He didn't misbehave, he did well at school and he was ignored. And Becky, with her drug addiction and her pregnancy and then her suicide, took all the energy and attention. And he has spent eight years obviously grieving her as well, but also just feeling the injustice of, well... I've lost my mum as well. We talked about all of Catherine's subsidiary losses, but he didn't just lose his sister. He lost his mum because she was kind of lost in her her grief and her distraction. Um, And he lost his family because his parents split up because of it. So they have this huge blow up. But what can happen if you have a huge blow up? You do clear the air. And so
2: it's actually it could be a positive thing to just shout it shout it all out, let it all out.
3: Yeah, I mean, well, ideally, you'd wish that they had discussed it before it got to the <laughs> point of, of that. But clearly they haven't. So it had to come out somehow. In another family, that could be the end. That could be like, right, well, that's it. You know, how dare you say those things? We're never going to talk again. But in this family, because they basically are very loving and quite emotionally mature, they are able to say, okay, I heard you, let's talk about this. And they have that very poignant scene where they go and meet in a cafe and he's able Mm. to say this is how I felt. And she's able to say, I'm sorry. And by bringing him sort of back into the family, he's able to then take Ryan into the family. Mm. And they do become a family where they've all been these very separate people all kind of holding their own grievances. Yeah,
2: tricky in the way that you can't compete with a dead person. You can't speak ill of the dead. So it's like
3: <laughs> yeah, they
2: become I- idealized a little bit
3: splitting happens they become all good and then the other people mm. become all bad and you can't see anybody as they really were with all their faults and and failings and inadequacies and i think that daniel's really wanting to remind Catherine that you know beck did have problems as well and mm. she wasn't all good and richard did as well in fact we heard it in that clip yeah. earlier yeah. when he started to say oh remember becky and she's like nope can't hear it mm-hmm. if she thinks that there was something wrong with Becky, then what does that make her? Does that make her a bad parent? That, that's actually one of the huge blow-ups with Ryan because the teacher calls her in again to talk about his yeah. behaviour. And she starts having to go at Ryan and saying, I'm not a rubbish parent. And of course, what she's really saying is I wasn't a rubbish parent to Becky. Becky. So he's really kind of re-triggering all those old feelings of, was, was it me? Which is why Tommy was so useful to her because it's like, no, he's the guilty one. It wasn't me. Yeah.
2: And and on top of that, she's got all these conflicts which we've we've already referenced, um, you know, with herself and with others. And then of course there's the very real, very physical conflict that is developing with Tommy, yeah. who's you know he's already beaten her to a pulp. Yeah. She's back now, um, you know, she's chasing him, cat and mouse. And we hit, reach this crescendo where she chases him down to this canal boat. I think he had Ryan on there, letting him drink beer and all this stuff.
3: And I think the the sort of the physical fight that ensues is also a battle of her inner conflict, that thing of head and heart. Do I let my destructive anger... Rip do I kill this guy or let him kill himself or do I allow my head to take control and say no I'm not going to kill him and She it's does, like, she
2: kind of does both
3: well, <laughs> well she she does I mean it is there is an awful sense of satisfaction when you see her give him a really good chicken kick some
2: ass like she not just figuratively ass. Yeah. Like when you think She'll about it, over the course of the three series she's like <laughs> physically quite strong
3: She She does quite a few blows She does but she does stop short of killing him she or letting does. him yeah kill himself and i think in saving him she saves herself
2: one more kick and who's the monster that she's scared of like right becoming a monster i mean like ryan really Mm. or is it you do you Mm -hmm, know what i mean exactly she's sort of a hero to her own villain there yeah Um, and
3: it's fascinating to see it kind of played out in real time really which angle is going to win the destructive one or the productive one who then gets him put away again
2: Mm. how do we find a new equilibrium as human beings having soaked up all this trauma we've we talked about that restorative process and talking things out with secure attachment figures Mm. is there more that we can do
3: whatever kind of breakdown happens it's a way of like strengthening the muscle of getting back from that again as well we know we've survived it in the past we know what we did we know we can come back from it
2: did you just say, what don't kill your make you're strong? Because well, <laughs> that's what it sounds like to me. And I like that.
3: Well, yes, sort of. <laughs> I mean, the, the actual phrase can, can be really annoying to a lot of people because it's like, yeah, but it, I really, did it really need to be that painful? Mm. But yeah, you need to have people that you can turn to. You need to understand physiologically when you've tipped over into that, you know, react mode, when you need to kind of calm yourself physiologically you need to know what steps you can take you know as I am endlessly saying we're works in progress and there's always going to be another crisis Mm. grief doesn't go away hasn't gone away for her over eight years but the bits that she suppressed were causing problems in her life, as we can see with her relationship with Ryan and her overly caretaking techniques and that that kind of slight brittleness. But as soon as she started letting them out, as soon as she started acknowledging the grief and the, the, the anger and, and the pain, then she was sort of able to manage them better. So mm. your grief doesn't get any smaller, but you get bigger around it.
2: Thank you, Sash. And thank you, everybody uh, out there for for your emails this week. We love getting them every week. It's just a bit of a highlight of my week, to be honest. Mm. Get them into box at sonymusic.com. That's box at sonymusic.com. This one's from uh, Evelina. I hope I'm saying your name right, Evelina. Um, hello, Ben and Sasha. Absolutely love your podcast. Thank you. Thanks for doing what you do and for being so honest and sincere about your own experiences on the pod. I was wondering if you would consider doing an episode on Camille from Sharp Objects. Oh, I've read the book, Sharp Objects, says uh, Gillian Flynn. Oh, yes, Gillian Flynn, she yes, wrote. Yes. Um, I've read Gondell. the book, as,
3: yes, I've read the book as well, yeah. um, but not She, seen the she show. like self harms? Yes.
2: Yeah, the, the series and the book, says Evelina, I suppose will come with a few trigger warnings um, mm. relevant to uh, uh, the show we've just done. Camille is quite emotionally disturbed, and we found out why th- slowly through the series. There's also a, a lot to cover on Camille's younger sister, Amma. Don't want to spoil anything in case you haven't seen the series and want to see it for yourselves. Oh, thanks, Evelina. That's very kind because I think I've forgotten a lot of the book. No, remember enjoying it.
3: Yeah, same here. <laughs> um,
2: thank you again for all your work. Best wishes, Evelina, who's a trainee CBT therapist, ah. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. It's like therapy with homework. That's what, <laughs> what I remember about it. <laughs> good way uh, who's of this, it. <laughs> who's this one? This is from Lee Webb, paediatric advanced nurse practitioner from Swansea. Mm. Hey, BBS and SB, love the podcast. Had to skip a couple of episodes so I can add the series to my streaming services. That's a good shout, actually. Like, if you see it and you think that sounds great, just just skip the show. Mm. There's plenty more that you can dig into mm. and then come back to it once you have watched it. It's probably
3: no time probably even
2: more... Um, Enjoyable, He says he's also really enjoying applying the same an- analysis to his own life. Lee says in the Geller episode, Sasha says it's Monica's defense mechanism. We all have one. And off I went thinking about that. In the Wonder episode, Sasha describes the grief process as non-linear. As a healthcare professional, it made me think I should probably be more prescient when thinking about grief because it comes up on a regular basis. Luckily, most of my patients are unlikely to hex an entire town (laughs) to try and recreate the life they're missing. I have so many characters I'd love to see on the couch. It's heavily marked by recent viewing. Uh, Cassian Andor, uh, one of the best uh, series on TV in recent years. Oliver Queen from Arrow. I think that is that. superhero thing? I'm not sure. The transition from rich party boy to vigilante via the Russian mafia scream psychoanalysis. Okay. And finally, Alina Starkov from Shadow and Bone. Just brilliant. This guy's just on a whole different planet. I've not seen... I haven't even seen Andor and I'm in that. <laughs> so I haven't seen any of these things. But anyway, he says, can't wait for more episodes. Love you guys. Oh, thanks Lee. We love you too. Guys, please do follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts normally and you can get more STB uh, to tell your friends about, you know, because that's that's the way we're going to make more and more shows. Um, word of mouth. And if you want to listen to Shrink the Box and Kermode and Mayo's take ad-free, plus extra exclusive episodes, subscribe to Extra Takes. Start your free trial now by clicking Try Free at the top of the Shrink the Box show page on Apple Podcasts or by visiting extratakes.com. Thank you to our production team. Production management is Lily Hambly. The assistant producer is Bashak Ayrton. Social media is Jonathan Imieri. The studio engineer is Gully Tickle. And the mix engineer is John Scott. The senior producer is Selina Ream. And executive producer is Simon Poole. And Shrink the Box is a Sony Music Entertainment production. So, little drum roll moment. Sasha, who have we got booked in for next week?
3: We have got somebody who is, almost defines the word neurotic. <laughs> I mean, he's react with anxiety, he catastrophizes, he's um, prone to bursts of uncontrollable rage interspersed with kind of a terrible insecurity. And it's the lovely George Costanza from oh, Seinfeld.
2: What? Oh, what a character. Let's, let's have a quick listen.
0: You're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine? <laughs> I invented it's not you, it's me. Nobody tells me it's them, not me. If it's anybody, it's me. All right, George, it's you. You're damn right it's me. Look, I was just trying to, you know, I know what you were trying to do. Nobody does it better than me.
2: <laughs> George Costanza in Seinfeld. I mean, he's no Tommy Lee Royce, but he is directly <laughs> responsible for at least one death and, and many physical injuries. Mm. Um, he's lazy. Mm -hmm. he's Mm self-obsessed he's cheap I mean (laughs) he is such a skinflint he even says I'm disturbed I'm depressed I'm inadequate I got it all
3: I mean, what is so great about it is they say it's a show about nothing, but it is about everything because it is about those human behavior, little things yeah. that we all do. I mean, most of us aren't out chasing criminals or doing drug deals or swanning exactly. about on yachts and helicopters, but we are wondering what to take to a dinner party or doing the laundry or worrying about, you know, shall I buy that new jacket? All the things that this is what they talk about. And so it's so relatable, but they kind of get a whole world of indecision and angst and social niceties all in those tiny little moments and it could get on un-
2: it can get under your skin in that in that can. regard the the, the 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 way you relate you know you see yourself you see human everyday human behavior in there You Um, do.
3: And also, I think you see that kind of intersection between um, the individual and society. I mean, it came in the early 90s, just out of the decade of greed is good and Thatcherite, no such thing as a society. And we see the result of those sort of messages that people mm -hmm. then think, oh, well, it's okay to just completely think about me. And we kind of See that that is not the answer, and we see the kind of like the, the misery and the emptiness of their lives by thinking that that is actually how you can live, yeah. separate from separate from other people, and just doing what you want to do all the time.
2: Absolutely, and 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 the fact that like, like we say, it's a show about nothing, puts us in quite a weird position, doesn't it? Because most of the time we do series one, because everything we're analysing, even friends to some extent, mm. has progress. You know, yeah. it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. Seinfeld I mean I watch episodes from any season at any given time just randomly I just pick them like like, you know popcorn or like Russian roulette I don't don't know Um, so what how how are we going to do this what episodes are we going to cover
3: you could almost like dip into any episode and know what was going on. So I would say, let's just see which episodes we like and and kind of see it as an example of what George can do at any one this time. It's going to be
2: kind of like George's greatest hits. George's this greatest, his greatest hits. hits album. Yes, <laughs> we are going to be doing a top ten, maybe fifteen, top fifteen. If we could do so many episodes of Peak Costanza. So don't say we uh, we, we don't give you nothing, listener. <laughs> that is luxury platinum standard. Shrink the box right there. I'm actually really Mm. excited. Me
3: too. So,
2: this time next week?
3: Yeah. See you then. Let's do it.
2: ta da. All right. Now, it's time to credit the magnificent Happy Valley created and written by Sally Wainwright. When Catherine Kaywood, Sarah Lancashire, tells her husband Richard, Derek Riddell, what article to write and... When she asks him what it would be like to take the law into her own hands, they are both from episode one, directed by Iros Lynn. And when Catherine says she's had it with Ryan to Richard, that's episode five, directed by Tim Firewell. Happy Valley was made by Red Production Company and distributed by the BBC. It's available to watch on the BBC iPlayer or on Netflix in America. Go to justwatch.com for further ways to view it. Thanks for listening, guys, and see you next week.